So I, I uh, wanted to talk tonight. We were talking about identity and all those things, and I'm going to start moving in a um, not a different direction, but building on some of the things that I've been talking about. Um, so I want to talk about tonight is the idea of being created in the image of God. What does it mean that you are created in the image of God? We say there's something different about us as human beings as opposed to dogs or cats or something like that. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. What does that mean? What does it mean that we are created in the image of God? Now, I want you to think about this quote from Henry David Thoreau. He said he wrote this. He wrote that uh, he said that this is his reflection of the human condition. He said that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. So I want you to think about three words. If Nate can find his marker, there it is. So which one of these words? Okay, the mass of men leads lives of quiet desperation. I find that very interesting. So which of these three would describe how you feel most of the time? Not all the time, but your general feeling of, of, of uh, how you're feeling inside. Created in God's image. That means that everyone, every child that has been born throughout the course of human history, including people like Adolf Hitler and others who have done uh, atrocities on a large scale, bore some image and some resemblance of God when you looked at them. Now, in light of that, how should we be feeling about ourselves most of the time? Mm -hmm. Three minutes seven. You need a polite vacation. <laughs> You're welcome to sleep as much as you want. I'm used to it, just for people over 65. Um. <laughs> okay, so in light of the fact that we are created in God's image, how would you expect to feel most of the time? You would expect to feel complete, right? I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. But I'm guessing most of us don't feel that way most of the time. So what's the next best thing? Or what, what is reality then? What does reflect reality? Maybe it's desperation. Maybe it's indifference. I don't exactly know. But I find that interesting because Psalm 90 tells us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. So uh, I think the national average in the United States is somewhere around 78 years and five months or something like that. So you're going to live an average of 78 years. How do you like, how would you like to spend your time? You want to feel desperate most of that time? Well, complete. Another question. Have you ever felt like there's probably something to life that you're missing? You're just not sure what it is. <coughs> There's this great um, 
Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, which if you would like to have uh, childhood philosophy summed up nicely, Bill Watterson's probably the author you should be reading the most. Uh, and, uh, Calvin's parents are, I think, sitting there one day, and his dad says something to the effect of, I wouldn't have been in such a hurry to grow up if I would have known that I was going to have to ad-lib the entire thing. What he's saying by that is that he got to the point that he is, and he has no idea what he's doing. And he's trying to figure it out as he's going along. So Proverbs 14.8 says that the wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. Okay, so the wise people understand their way. There's two aspects of that that you can look at. One is some of the things that we've been talking about in class, about our way being where are we now and how did we get here. So that's one, that's one side of that equation. But the other side of that equation is how did God create us? So we're going to understand our way, if we want to be wise, we have to understand who we are now, in other words, the, the things that have shaped us and made us into who we are today. We also need to understand who God created us to be, because if we understand where we're going, maybe we can figure out why we ended up where we are and how to get to a better place. Imagine trying to build a house, so I was a carpenter, I could do this, imagine trying to build a house. You've never done it before. You have no blueprint. You have no idea what tools you need. And we're going to throw you out there and tell you, build the house. Parenting's kind of like that, by the way. Um, you just kind of get thrown into it and you don't really know what you're doing. Um, but I feel like when we think about what God wants from us, most of us don't really know. Like we have these ideas and things that we hear maybe across the pulpit or in books that we read or in popular religious culture. But really when it comes down to it, what actually does it mean that God created me, that he has a purpose for my life, and all, all the other things that get wrapped up in that. Like How does that drive what I do tonight? Or what I do tomorrow morning when I wake up? Proverbs also says this, that wisdom is before him that hath understanding. So we find out that the wisdom of the prudent is to understand their way. We find out that wisdom belongs to people who have understanding. Okay, so where are we supposed to understand? I want to look at creation and tonight and try to figure out, think about it this way. Genesis is the, is the oldest text that we have um, as far as, as, far as uh, when it was written in relationship to the rest of the, the, rest of the Gospels. It's, it's our oldest story. Of all the things that God could have told us about our creation story, he chose to tell us what we see in Genesis 1-3. to Why? Well, let's take a look. There's several key points in the creation story that I think are foundational to understanding our identity. First off, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. What does that tell us about God? You're like, well, I don't know. First off, it tells us that we live in a world of chaos and order. If you look at the Hebrew, that's actually the wording that is used there when it says the earth was without form and void, or shapeless and... Uh, just nothing. 
And God spoke into the chaos and created order. What does that mean, though, for us? Well, first off, it means that where chaos dwells... So think about this now in relationship to your lives. Let's say you're feeling desperate or indifferent or something other than what you would like to feel. If you look at our creation story, God is saying that in the chaos lives the potential for order. How do you do that? Well, God spoke just by accident. That's just, oh, that's just how God decided he's going to do his creating this week. Is uh, He's just going to speak this time. It's like, no. If you look at the principle of what's going on there, the way you create order out of chaos is you speak the truth into that. We've talked about some of that earlier on here in class. Um, the other thing about speaking the truth is that definition brings light. And understanding brings wisdom. And I won't spend a lot of time talking about that. What else do we see about our creation story? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So that's, those two verses are where we get this idea that we are created in the image of God. Take that away. Take away these two verses out of the Bible. There goes our basis for not killing off the mentally ill, the elderly, and the unborn. Why? Because we say they're created in the image of God. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means that we have a body and a soul and a spirit. It means that we're aware of our emotions. At least we have that capacity. But think about what it means to be made in the image of something. An image is a copy. It's a reflection. It's not the real thing. It's just a part of it. Jesus, here's, here's a, an interesting example of how that works out. So, so um, the, uh, the lawyer came to Jesus and said, uh, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus asks for a coin, and he says, whose likeness is on the coin? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And then he said, then you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. But there's a part there that's left unsaid. Why does the coin belong to Caesar? Because it has his image. What Jesus implied is that what belongs to God is the thing that bears his image, which is you and I. He left that part unsaid, but that's what he's talking about. We're made like God, okay? So if we're made in the image of God, it would stand to reason that we feel fulfilled when we do what God does. Make sense? So what does God do? Well, we said God spoke the truth. I want you to think about this. Imagine if you lived your life where everything you said and did was an actual reflection of what was going on inside of you. Sound good? <coughs> Think about that. 
Imagine living your life where what everyone else saw on the outside was, is what was actually happening on the inside. And I mean that in a good way, not in a bad way. Like, there's reasons that we don't say everything we think. But that's what happens when God spoke the truth. There was no evasiveness, no hypocrisy. Think about this. God's word was used to reveal, not to hide. Do you ever play with your words? Because we manipulate. We can manipulate our surroundings with our words. We can allow people to think things that aren't a reflection of reality because we're trying to hide things. And the other thing about his words is that they brought life and not death. So when you see what God's doing with his speech, in Genesis 1 especially, he's bringing light, he's bringing order, and he's creating life. Okay, what else did God do in creation? God created things that he saw as good. So being made in the image of God means that we find fulfillment in creating order out of chaos. I want to illustrate that for you. Uh, I forgot it here. So we find fulfillment in doing what God does. Okay. What is this? Somebody tell me. It's a it's a mug. Get a little more basic than that. How do you make pottery? With clay. Somebody, Vanessa Anderson, I presume, since I got this from her, took a lump of clay and she created order out of that lump of clay. She was creating something. Think about that in relationship to what you do here at Mountain View. When you're washing dishes, you're taking chaos and turning it into order. Especially depending who just ate off of that plate, right? When you're cooking food, what are you doing? You're taking chaos, and you're using it to create order. You're using it to give life, right? When you sweep the floor, when you fold the laundry, basically everything we do here at Mountain View, CNA work, maintenance work, all of those things, what you're doing is you're taking chaos and using your, the abilities that God has given you to create order out of that and make it as a place, make this place a place where people can thrive. That's what we do. And we find it fulfilling. Now people find different things fulfilling. So uh, one of the things that's really interesting about this is that, um, okay, music. Here's a great example of this. Um, music doesn't pay well, right? You don't have very many uh, rich musicians, songwriters, singers, etc. At least not... Uh, Okay, you could say you've got your stars, fair enough, but that's a really, really, really small minority of the population of the people that are doing that. What musicians do is they create. That's their job. <coughs> they create order out of chaos. Now sometimes that order happens to be pretty chaotic, depending who you are. But uh, think about it in this way. Um, let's take uh, Chanticleer, for example. For those of you who know who Chanticleer is, it's a men's group. Secular singers, um, not Christian, they sing a lot of sacred music. Think about it in this way. In, when they are in concert on stage singing, they are reflecting God's image. It doesn't have anything to do with their heart. Now the image might be more complete if their heart was in tune with God's heart. But in that moment, what they are doing is creating, and God created them to do that. So God created us to create. God created us to bring life. God created us to make things 
out of other things. I got a painting in my, uh, in my office, same thing. Somebody took a blank piece of canvas and created order using paint. I can't do that. But that's the logistics of what was happening in that. Okay, so we see that going on in creation. God created, he spoke the truth. He created things that he saw were good. And also we find out that God rested at the appropriate times. Now here's another uh, part of this that we're going to get, to get into a little bit later. Okay, so rest is not a word that we really know what it means here at Mountain View, because your life is, you know, full tilt so much of the time. But in creation, God worked six days, and he rested one. What does that tell us? Life needs to be held in balance. Not everything is good all the time. So this is all outside of God, how God created us specifically. Let's look at how God created us as human beings. So Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Can anybody tell me what the Hebrew word for God that is used here? Anybody know? It's Elohim. Okay. Elohim is plural. It means gods. That's why it's translated. God said, let us make man, let us make man in our image. What does that tell you about God? If God is plural, it tells you that God exists in relationship. Not only does God create, not only does God make things that are good, not only does he speak the truth, but he himself exists within relationship. If we are made in his image, we also find fulfillment in relationship. But what kind of relationship? How is that supposed to look? If you go to Genesis 2.20, and Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. So Adam noticed that there was no companion. You think about it, that in all of creation, Adam was surrounded by perfect order. Now what's interesting is, um, we live in this tension with, with chaos and order. How many of you would say you like uh, you like when things are the way you expect them to be? Personality-wise, okay. Why would you ever leave Mountain View? Every week on Saturday morning, you can come up to the mail room and look at the schedule, and the next week's laid out for you. You know exactly what to expect. You know when you're going to be eating breakfast. You know what time you're going to have to get up. You know what you're going to be doing in the evening. You like that? It's not cool long-term, is it? Why? It's too much order, isn't it? You'd like to have a little bit more chaos in your lives. So you think about the Nazis, for example, um, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party, they took Germany in the 30s, the 1930s, and a place where the economy was, was, uh, was not working, they were poor, the inflation was out of control, and the reason Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party became so popular is because they took the chaos of the country and turned it into order. Now they got a little carried away, so they created this gas called Zyklon B, which, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, invented by a Jewish man, or discovered by a Jewish man. So they take Zyklon B, and they're like, you know what, we can clean up the factories a little bit. And so, because they had these rat problems in their factories, so they take Zyklon B into the, uh, into the uh, factories, and they clean up the rats. 
And if I'm not mistaken, they even required, boy, this is getting a little fuzzy in my memory here. They even required uh, the factory owners or the managers to plant things like flowers and shrubs and trees outside to make it a nice place. The problem is they got a little carried away on the order because then they take the Zyklon B gas and they're like, you know what? We could clean up the mental institutions with this stuff. A little too much order, isn't it? And then they say, well, you know what? We could do this to the Jews and the gypsies and the homosexuals and anybody else we don't like. But when it came to detail, they were really, 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 really good at what they were doing. They just got carried away. So you had order, it's good, but it needs to be held in the proper balance. So one of the things that we tend to do is we, for people that are hyper-conscientious, we tend to make order, we tend to have so much order that we choke out any, any ability to have like meaningful, happy, uh, spontaneous existence within that order. And so when God places Adam in the Garden of Eden, and we're going to get to that a little bit later too, God places Adam in the Garden of Eden, his environment was as perfect as it could get. And yet Adam still realized that his needs were not being met. Because God created Adam to live in relationship. Another interesting thing about the, uh, the verse there in Genesis 2.20 is that there was not found in help, space, meat, suitable for him. It's not help meat. And it drives me crazy when the preacher says that at the wedding. That word, uh, help, help meet, the words help meet. In some translations, it will say that there was not found a help suitable for him. But if you look at the Hebrew, what that means is that there was not found a help against him. So what it means is that Adam had nobody to push back on him, essentially, is, is, is what the Hebrew, is, that's the picture that the Hebrew word is giving there. Um, I'd love to talk about that more. We're going to try to talk about that later. Okay, at another class. So Adam still feels like something is missing, even though he's living in as perfect a world as he could get. Because we were created with God, by God, with the need for community. Okay, so what does healthy relationship look like then, as God created us to experience it? Okay, Adam and Eve were naked in the Garden of Eden. What that means is that they were vulnerable with each other. They lived in the place that God created for them. So that, gives us, that brings us to the subject of boundaries. Paradise means walled garden. So you have paradise here. Adam and Eve will leave them with their heads for now since we are a Mennonite organization. Adam and Eve are living within the walled garden In perfect vulnerability. So relationships, yes or no? Relationships need boundaries to survive, to, to survive and thrive. Is that right? Think about it this way. Some of you like boundaries. Some of you resent boundaries. I don't know why. Sometimes it's just because of our personalities. Actually, it's largely because of our personalities. But sometimes it's because uh, boundaries weren't in their proper place in our lives when we were growing up, therefore we don't know how to have proper boundaries now. But think about it this way. We have uh, millions of poor, desperate people around the world 
that are flooding the southern border of the United States trying to get in. Should the United States build a wall or not? Well, you have about 50% of, of the country that says emphatically, yes. And you have about 50% of the company that has a resounding no. Why not? Or why? Okay, what do walls do? They bring definition, don't they? So for centuries and centuries and millennia across the globe, countries have had borders. Do you know why? It defines who's in and who's out. It defines who is under our control and who isn't. So you take someone, let's say, that doesn't like uh, the idea of a wall at the southern border because we need to care about other people and we need to help them, we need to allow them to come in. All right, I have a question for those people. I'm not, this is not Nate advocating for the border wall. Um, by the way, uh, my favorite Trump joke currently is uh, Donald Trump, Trump's favorite Bible character is Nehemiah because he built the wall and got the Persians to pay for it. <laughs> really good. So, we, we say, well, we need to care about people. We don't want a wall at the southern border. Okay, well, then here's the question. Where should the walls be? Because I notice those people still have walls in their houses. Why? Okay, let's take them out of their house. You go to the homeless encampments in San Francisco, for example, they're still living in tents. Why? Because we like walls. Regardless of where we argue, of how we argue about where to set the boundaries, we still want boundaries and we still want definition. You could say, I love my dormies, I just, I'm just completely open with them, and you still pull the shower curtain and shut the door, right? <laughs> I don't want to know if that is. <laughs> Why? Because we like boundaries, don't we? There's still something about you and I can have good relationship because I understand the need and the utility for proper boundaries. So even in the Garden of Eden, God had boundaries. So you think about good relationships now. Good relationships involve allowing you to see, so if I, if I have a good relationship with someone, that involves me allowing you to see what's behind my walls. Now, but here's the thing. Good relationships don't mean that I let everyone see what's behind my walls all the time, right? Another, here, here's a classic example because I know a guy like this. Uh, he got married in an older age. He's had tons of issues. He's probably got a touch of Asperger's, and he's now in like his 70s, and didn't do so great with the with the children of the widow that he married, and things kind of fell apart at other times, and he's still got a lot of issues. He's got a good heart and all of that thing, all of that stuff. But uh, it's inappropriate for him to get up in church during testimony time and talk about all the mistakes he made. Not that there's ever a time for that but it's not proper boundaries for you to get up and air your dirty laundry repeatedly again and again and again. There's a time and place for that. It's not all the time in front of everybody. So good boundaries means that I know when to have the walls up. And there are times when it's appropriate for me to be vulnerable. So what do you need for appropriate vulnerability? Okay, now think about this in the context of the Garden of Eden. What do you need for appropriate vulnerability? So you have God dwelling out here. You have Adam and Eve 
in the Garden of Eden, and you have God who would come into the Garden of Eden and walk with them, Genesis 3 says in the cool of the day. And uh, so you look at where the walls are here. Proper boundaries and relationships. There's no walls between the two of Adam and Eve, but there are walls. And the walls are on the outside, creating a safe place for vulnerability to happen. Healthy vulnerability takes place in environments that are safe. So walls are necessary to bring definition, but in order for the two of us, or for you and someone else, to be able to be appropriately vulnerable with each other and to trust each other, you have to trust that our relationship is a safe place for me to expose what's going on in my life. It's healthy boundaries. What happens if we don't have good boundaries? Well, some examples of, of unhealthy boundaries. I have walls around myself that never come down and I never reveal myself to anybody. That's unhealthy boundaries. I don't have any walls and I reveal myself <laughs> to everybody. That's also unhealthy. Why? Because you should only, so Jesus talks about not casting your pearls before swine. You should only reveal yourself well, let me think about the right way to say this. You should be vulnerable with people who will honor who you are in an appropriate way. Because there are people that will take advantage <coughs> and disrespect who you are just because you can. The other interesting thing about boundaries is that if we don't have a good handle on boundaries in our own lives, we also don't have the ability to respect other people's boundaries. I'll give you another example of this. I, uh, there was a, a family that lived in our community at one point that really had a lot of struggles. Um, they just Life was just tough, and some of it was their fault and some of it wasn't. Probably, that looks like a pig snout, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> there we go. And uh, anyway, they had this habit of assuming that what you owned also belonged to them. Maybe that's probably the best way I can say it. And so they were one of those people that when they borrowed something, it might come back, it probably won't come back when you need it, and if it had gas in it when it left, there was a decent chance that it wasn't going to have gas in it when it came back. That sort of thing. It felt like it's just taking relationship again and again and again. Well, some of what happened in their lives is the fact that they didn't have good boundaries for themselves, which means that they also encroached on the boundaries of other people. And they didn't have a good way of respecting um, the boundaries of people around them. Anyway. So, all right, any questions before we go on or comments? All right, so what is our purpose as God created us then? So I've been talking about a number of things that, that just kind of principles that, uh, that we see in our creation story, but what, what is our purpose as God created us? So back about 15 years ago or so, uh, guys like John Piper 
and others, uh, championed the idea that we are created for God's glory. Our job is to bring glory to God. That's our purpose. Well, yes, I agree with that. But I'm just dumb enough that I need a little bit more direction on what exactly that looks like. So what are we created for? <coughs> Genesis 2.15 And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Something interesting about that is that if you look at Genesis 1, it says God, Elohim. You get to Genesis 2 after God created man. From then on, it's the Lord God. And when God is interacting with man almost every time, it's the two words put together. The Lord God and the the uh, the meaning of that in the word and those two words being put together is that it's a relational aspect of God that is now doing the speaking. Anyway, so the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So man has two purposes. He is to dress the garden and to keep it. So the word dress is the Hebrew word abed. And what that means is is that he is to labor in the garden. It's supposed to be the place where he works. He's to use it. He's to service it. He is to work there and presumably do what God does, which is creating and maintaining order. And we're going to get uh, into that a little bit deeper here in a second. The other thing that God says is that, uh, well, let's keep going on that just a little bit here. So this was to be Adam's project where he could create and maintain order from what God had given him. This is interesting because back in Genesis 20, Genesis 1, God says this to the man. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, says, Be fertile and multiply. So kind of like cats and rabbits, I guess. Um, but we typically see this command as bearing children, right? Be fruitful and multiply. The Jews say, so interesting, man. It's got some really interesting ideas. So this verse is before the creation of Eve, as far as we know, because this is in Genesis 1, where it says God created he, him, male and female, created he, them. That's the wording there. It's not until Genesis 2 that God gets around to actually making a uh, creating a woman. So anyway, the rabbis say that that commandment applies to men, but not to women. Good luck with that, gentlemen. Be fruitful and multiply applies to you, but not to the ladies. All right, so what is that supposed to mean? I found this really interesting, and uh, I actually think this is true. How does that work? All right, God makes a garden, puts man into it. This is prior to creating woman. This is prior to God creating Eve. He puts man in the garden, and he says, I want you to dress the garden. In other words, I want you to make the garden a place where life can flourish and reproduce. And then sometimes down the road, sometime down the road, God gives Adam a wife. Think about it this way. Man, I think this is about as good of a way as I can, as I can put it. Because if you look at, especially the Song of Solomon, um, the Song of Solomon refers to, uh, speaking specifically of women here, as having a garden. 
and, and I think everyone probably has a garden. And what I mean by that is it's a place that you have built where you live and you can enjoy. And, and the garden analogy kind of goes through this, the whole, the whole uh, Song of Solomon there. But I think the best way that I can describe it is this. God placed man into the garden and he was to create and maintain a place where one woman can flourish and bring life into the world. So when, when um, at a Hebrew wedding, so I talked about this um, and I'm back to being in my Exodus class, but the, you have the, uh, the chuppah, the, uh, the pavilion thing that, that the bride and groom enter in and go underneath to say their wedding vows. And the groom promises to take care of the sexual needs of his wife. She does not promise to do that for him. Now you think about our culture. We have that backwards in our Western culture, very much so. But the idea is that if man does not create a place that is safe for a woman to reproduce, she is under no obligation to do that for him. Does that make sense? And so you have Adam giving the, given the command by God, Adam, your job is to create a world that is safe. Now, not, not so ordered that no, no creativity can, can exist whatsoever, but your job is to create a place where one woman feels secure. Because later on in Genesis 2, Adam says, Therefore shall a man cleave and leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and that that is not supposed to be separate. That's not supposed to come back apart. So the responsibility of creating a safe space belongs with men. Because if you do that, then the other part of what God created has the ability to thrive and flourish. But most of what we do is we put the role of childbearing and child raising on women. Now some of that happens by necessity, I understand that. But the responsibility lies with the man to create that garden. So, okay, so back in Genesis 2, 15. He put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So the word keep is shomer, and what that means is to hedge about with thorns, that's the, the literal wording that's used there, to hedge about with thorns to guard. Okay, so not only is Adam supposed to make this place safe, habitable, a place where life can flourish, he's also responsible to make sure that nothing enters into that that shouldn't come in there, that the walls around the outside of the relationship are properly maintained. Now, within that garden, they were to have children, they were to take ownership and care for what God had created while creating copies of their own images, because that's what they were doing, that's what you do when you have children, and they were, in, they were to enjoy freedom within the boundaries that God had set for them. Freedom within boundaries. Sound right? Psalm 119, 96 says this. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceeding is exceedingly broad. What that word broad means without limit. So perfection has its limit. Here's, here's how I think the New Living Translation says it. It says something like this. To all perfection there is a limit, but the laws of the Lord are limitless. We would tend to think those of opposites, wouldn't we? Where there's law, there's limits. And where there's perfection, we don't have to have limits. But no, God created us to live freely within boundaries. 
Now here's the thing. You can go outside of your bound you can go outside of the boundaries that God has ordained and say, well now I'm free. But you really aren't free, are you? Because uninhibited lack of restraint never brings fulfillment. Okay, so whatever your advice might be, maybe it's maybe it's eating, maybe it's, you know, uh, promiscuous sexuality or, or you name it. We only find fulfillment in those things when we use them as God has intended. You want to you spread your sexuality all over the place? Go ahead. But there's a price to pay for it. You want to get to the, uh, to the uh, food line every day and treat it like a feeding trough? Go ahead. But there's a price to pay for it. It has its limits. In summary, we're created to live in places where it is safe to have more relationships with God and with each other. We'll think about life basic needs. Security, significance, and relationship. Security, significance, and relationship. God addresses all three of those things in the first two chapters of Genesis. So I said that God created Adam in a perfect world, and he still recognized that he had a need. God created us with needs. More than that, God created us to have our needs met. But here's the problem. When you have needs, you also have weaknesses. And when you have weaknesses, you can be hurt. God created us with weakness. And they become the place where he can be hurt the most. Notice how the serpent comes to Eve in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The serpent comes to Eve and he places a seed of doubt in her mind. And that doubt is this. Can God really be trusted to have my best interest in mind? And if you've never wrestled with that question, it's because you haven't seen enough evil. Can God really be trusted to have my best interest in mind? Satan's lie was this. God is a bit on the selfish and insecure side. He's trying to keep you from getting to be like him. And because of that, Eve... It's in your best interest to take matters into your own hands and do things your way. And that's what happened in the fall. We decided that we're going to do things our way. What happens when we decided to do life our way? We started forsaking the garden to guard and serve ourselves. Life became, so, life became something to be avoided and feared, and vulnerability became the enemy instead of our path to healing. What happens as a result of that? Well, some of that depends on how we react to what happens to us. But recently, uh, 
my wife and I were talking about someone, not someone that is here, or that ever was here, for that matter. And <clears throat> Frida just said something really profound. She said, it bothers me that she is willing that she is willing to try to keep her world safe at the expense of those around her. That was so interesting. Because what happens when we start, when we stop guarding the things that are important, or we stop having the ability to be vulnerable. Because what happens is sometimes, let's say the wall is breached, and this happens to people. And okay, so there's a gross breach of of uh, our gardens, for example. We've been hurt deeply, and the walls have been taken down in some ways, or at least they've been. What's what's inside has been exposed. Um, one of the things that could happen is we could say, forget the walls. I'm just not going to have any boundaries. That's one reaction. Another reaction is to say that that's never going to happen to me again. And we make boundaries, and we make boundaries, and we build walls, and we build walls, and we build walls to the point where no one ever is able to get in. And we're never able to expose anything ourselves anymore. What happens is, if that's the case, and you come close to me, I'm perfectly willing to use you to reinforce my walls at whatever expense to you. I don't care, because my need to be saved is more important than whatever your needs might be. I've seen that play out in people. But it's not the answer. What happened because of the fall is that we try to keep ourselves free, safe, and free from pain at the expense of our souls and at the expense of our relationships. I want to get more into, um, well, let, let's just talk a little bit about what the, what the antidote to that is. Some of it we talked about already tonight. So we have something that's broken. How do we go about fixing it? Well, you go about fixing it by going back to being and acting and living the way God created us in the Garden of Eden, which is to start speaking the truth. Because truth brings order into chaos. If the wisdom of the prudent is really to understand his way, if that's really where wisdom lies, in understanding, in some ways we have to be willing to reach into the brokenness and start building. Start moving towards vulnerability and things like that. I want to leave you with one more illustration that has been really, really helpful to me in thinking about some of these things. So we live life, if you look at the life of Christ, you notice that he had circles of friends. So in the middle, you had, you know, Jesus' relationship with God the Father. After that, he had his relationship with John, and then his relationship with Peter, James, and John, and then the 12 apostles, and then the 120, or the 70, and then the 120, and then the 500, and so on. And think of your life like a concentric circle like this. Um, you have you in the middle. This is the most intimate part of you. 
Now, if you're walking in relationship with God, what should happen is that the closer someone gets to me, the closer they get to God, the more of God that they see, because that's what's happening at the most intimate part of me. Um, you see God playing that out in Scripture in a number of ways, one of those ways being the Ark of the Covenant. So when two parties in the Old Testament would make a covenant, let's say it was me and Zach, I would keep my copy of the covenant, I would take, it, I would take my copy of the covenant home and keep it safe in the place that was most sacred to me. Zach would take his home and keep his copy safe in the place that was most sacred to him. And Moses was told by God to take both copies of the covenant and put them in Israel's sacred space. Because God was saying, where your most sacred place is, is where my most sacred place is going to be as well. What happens, the closer you get to the center, the closer you get to God. Well, here's what happens. So, I'm here. This is, this is Nate right here in the middle. Nate's most deep, intimate thoughts and feelings, etc., etc. Where are you in this circle? You're not here, are you? My wife should be here. I would say she probably is pretty close to that right now, you think. Yeah, that's getting a little too much. It's getting you too close to that. Um, but you think about it, that you have your, your levels of relationships coming out here. And so what happens is, if I've been hurt, let's say there's been a breach into my garden, into my identity, into the core of who I am, I've been hurt in some way, or been damaged, or someone has taken advantage of me, what may end up happening is that I just strengthen this entire thing out here and never let anyone in again. Well, let's say you set out now. Let's say you, let's say you realize that, you know what, I've, been, I've got these walls, and I'd like to start living in a little more vulnerability and openness. Likely, you're not going to be able to just let everyone in the entire way into the center. But you can start letting people in here. And then maybe in here. And then maybe closer and closer and closer. Because what happens is we, we tend to see, we tend to see the, um, we tend to see what's not going well, well in our lives and we want to fix it and we want to fix it right now. That's not usually how it works. Um, I had someone ask me a while back how to, how to begin to connect with her boyfriend because she didn't know if she could trust him because she's this guy that she doesn't know that well. And I said, well, that's how you start. You can start by Our lives are lived in increments, and our relationships happen in increments. But it's often when we're willing to when we're willing to start that leads us where we want to go. I think I'll let that there for tonight.